So, Hannah, why is Disney World in the news right now? Disney World is in the news right now because the legislature of the state of Florida has voted to remove the special district that Disney has functioned under for more than five decades. And the governor, who is a Republican, has signed that bill into law. Hannah Sampson writes for a travel section at The Post called By the Way, and she has been reporting on this battle between Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, and Disney World. Disney and DeSantis have been publicly feuding for more than a month now. That feud is over a new law that limits what teachers can say to kids about gender and sexual orientation. Disney is very opposed to the law. DeSantis has championed the law. I I think that that partnership that developed early on with Walt Disney, I don't think Walt would appreciate what's going on in this company right now. I'm sorry. And so... uh... And as that played out, the state created a new special session. And as part of that, they took this very hasty vote to dismantle Disney's kind of self-governing status. Remember, the districts that are affected have not had any legislative oversight in over 50 years. And some of the districts have incredibly sweeping powers such that a single company could start construction on a nuclear reactor. And this niche conflict over Disney's self-governance in Florida actually raises a lot of questions about what Republicans are willing to do to win the culture wars, about what corporations might be willing to lose to make a statement, and about what it all means for the communities that are stuck in the middle. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 25th. Today, how this new law in Florida has entangled the most magical place on Earth. And later in the show, how the end of mask mandates on public transit has changed the calculation for millions of people trying to get to work. So tell me about this legislation and why Disney has gotten involved. So this bill that passed earlier this year is called the Parental Rights and Education Law. Now, opponents call it, you might have heard of it, as the Don't Say Gay Bill. It restricts teachers in public schools from talking about gender identity and sexual orientation in the very youngest elementary school grades. But critics say it's so kind of loosely written and vague that it could really have a chilling effect on talking about those subjects like pretty much through any grade in public school. So Disney kept a low profile on this for a long time. They didn't say much about this law at first, but its employees and fans really mounted a pressure campaign to get the company to speak out. They finally did. The bill got passed anyway. The governor signed it into law. And then Disney kind of went hard and said, our goal as a company is for this law to be repealed or to be struck Mm. down in court. And Governor DeSantis hated that. He (laughs) said, you've crossed the line. How are we going to let this woke corporation tell us in the state of Florida how to pass bills and protect our children? And it's just kind of escalated since then. And escalated to this new piece of legislature that essentially takes away Disney's tax status? Or what does this kind of punishing law do? 
It's so complicated and it's not something that anyone who really thinks about Disney World probably would ever even contemplate. <laughs> um, but yes, this this escalated to the point where some Republican legislators were saying, how can we punish Disney? And they started floating this idea, maybe we can get rid of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Hmm. That was created in 1967 by an act of the legislature. And it let Disney essentially govern its own property hmm. through like very kind of complicated wrangling. But basically, because Disney is the largest landowner on this very large piece of land that their resort sits on, they have all of the representation to make decisions for it under this special district. And the legislator said, maybe this is a way we can get back at them. This is something we gave them. Maybe we could take it away. I want to ask more about this improvement district, this Disney self-governance, because I think part of my brain is like, what? That's crazy. But also as a Floridian, I know you're a Floridian too. Many, many trips I went to Disney World as a kid. And I feel like that actually makes sense to me. I mean, when you drive toward Disney at some point, like the highway signs become Disney highway signs. And I always know that there's like Disney jail and a Disney fire station and that they have like all the trappings of its own municipality, but it's all Disney. Right. So it's all Disney and it's all Reedy Creek Improvement District. But it's true. In in all of the years that I have spent going to Disney and, and they are pretty much all of my years, <laughs> You do cross into Disney territory and you do feel like you're in this whole other world. It's Walt Disney World. And part of the reason that they can kind of exist in their own bubble is because they provide the road maintenance and they provide the fire service and they do wastewater treatment and they do electrical. I mean, all of these things that you don't even think about, Disney is kind of providing for itself through this improvement district. So it gives them this kind of amazing amount of power to keep things up to their very high standards, to be as specific as they need to be with the services that they provide, and to operate without kind of additional layers of red tape that they would need to go through to get approval from the county to build giant, you know, castles or or mm -hmm. domes that they have on their property. So how would that start to change with this new law targeting Disney? Nobody really knows how things will change with this law. It doesn't dismantle the district until June 1st of 2023. So that gives Disney and the state and the surrounding counties more than a year to try to work out all the details. But worst case scenario, say the district goes away, Disney doesn't challenge the law in court, there isn't a new similar district reestablished, if it just goes away, that would mean Disney would have to have other people come in and do that work that hmm. Disney has essentially been doing for itself. So maybe you would see the Orange County Fire Department with its trucks on property instead of the Reedy Creek Fire Department. You Maybe you would have to rely on the counties or the state to maintain the roadways. You might be looking at longer waits to build new roller coasters or new attractions or new hotels because you'd have to go through additional levels of approval. It's all at this point very kind of theoretical and like a big game of what if, but those are some of the potential outcomes that 
experts that we've talked to have named. This sounds like a scenario that clearly Disney does not want to have actually happen. But how would this all affect the community around Disney? So Disney isn't talking about any of this right now. They're they're being very tight-lipped. But it does make sense that it would be tough for them to lose a level of control that they've entirely built this kingdom on. Surrounding communities have been a little more vocal because they're looking at potentially getting saddled with more than a billion dollars in debt that the Reedy Creek Improvement District is sitting on, Hmm. in addition to having to provide services that they might not get enough additional money for to cover. So the mayor of Orange County actually said last week that if they had to provide, for example, like fire services and other services to that area without getting additional revenue, he called it potentially catastrophic. If we had to take over uh, the first response to public safety components uh, for Reedy Creek with no new revenue, uh, that would be uh, catastrophic for our budget here within Orange County. It would put an undue burden on the rest of the taxpayers in Orange County to fill that gap. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like not a good scenario. And the counties have also been saying that taxpayers in surrounding counties could be saddled with the number is not entirely clear because it's so theoretical, but potentially a couple thousand more dollars in taxes as a result of this. Like everything would kind of be the same as it is today. They're just paying all this more money because the state has decided to get rid of this behind the scenes district that Disney operates in. So in some ways, it seems really surprising to me that Governor DeSantis would risk such, you know, negative consequences for these communities around Disney, for taxpayers, all to just stick it to this company, right? I mean, that seems like it's putting a lot on the line just to, you know, make this statement against this so-called woke company and their opposition to the to what critics are calling this don't say gay bill. I think there's a question about how much DeSantis is really putting on the line. As observers have pointed out, Orange County, which would bear a lot of the burden of these additional taxes, is a pretty blue county. So it's not like it's a DeSantis stronghold anyway. But he also, as many people have pointed out, he is an ambitious governor who is often floated as a potential 2024 candidate. And if you're waging these high profile culture wars against just like one of the biggest companies that you can imagine and the most high profile companies you can imagine, Mm -hmm. maybe the political payoff is better for him Mm -hmm. because he's raising his profile um, by fighting this culture war that could get a lot of national attention. And what do people in Iowa or Pennsylvania really care about the taxpayer problems of citizens of Central Florida? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because it does feel like, you know, Florida is so synonymous with Disney and Florida's economy and especially the tourism economy is so dependent on Disney that I think for a long time, I mean, Florida lawmakers have really bent over backwards to give Disney what it wants or make Florida continue to be an attractive place for Disney, but that the political landscape has changed so much that suddenly it's advantageous for 
the governor of Florida to go toe to toe with Disney. I mean, this this fundamental part of what it means to be Florida. And and Disney and Florida have really lined each other's pockets for a long time. Disney contributes to lawmakers, including a lot of Republicans, and the state has given them tax breaks. But that's kind of changing, at least on the Disney side right now. They actually paused all political contributions in light of the legislation around LGBTQ issues in education. It's a pause, so we don't know if it's permanent, and we don't know how that will change moving forward, but it's something that they're looking seriously at. So, you know, potentially, could we see that relationship fluctuate over time? Yeah, I think so. I also feel like we have seen this play out in different ways in states outside of Florida, especially when it comes to the GOP. And historically, you know, it's known as the political party of business and corporations and uh, supporting industry, but that over and over we're seeing conservative state and local governments really feuding with companies that they feel don't share their values. I mean, I'm thinking about Georgia passing that restrictive voting law last year and Major League Baseball deciding to move its all-star game out of Atlanta. So how does what's happening between Disney and DeSantis tell us more about how there are these underlying tensions between legislatures and corporations? It really is a fine line that corporations are trying to walk. You know, we saw, you mentioned in Georgia, we saw Delta speak out against that, the airline, and then the state threatened them. This is something that we've seen play out over the last few years as consumers have demanded more kind of accountability from companies. Mm. But it is something that can potentially have major ramifications for the corporations. And of course, they're not nonprofits. They're looking at their bottom line constantly. So, you know, will this have a chilling effect on Disney? Will it have a chilling effect on other companies that are thinking about operating in Florida? I don't know, but it definitely has to be making giant corporations look twice and think twice about when they speak up on political hot potato issues. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. Hannah Sampson is a reporter for By the Way. This story was produced by Rennie Spranovsky. After the break, we've got another story from Florida. How a ruling by a judge there about masks has had huge implications for people who use public transit every day. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Last week, a federal judge in Florida ended the federal mask mandate for public transit, and we heard a ton about how that affected air travel. My company announces at this moment, if you 
you choose to, you may remove your mask. TSA said they would no longer enforce the mask mandate. Airlines let passengers know, mid-flight, that masks were now optional. But that decision wasn't just about air travel. The judge's decision allowed local transit authorities to get rid of their mask mandates, but it did not require them to do so. So some local transit authorities are keeping their mask mandates in place for subways and buses. Others are making masks optional. And what the judge's decision did was just give them the choice on what to do. So since that decision in Florida, we've been hearing a ton about how it's impacted air travel and what it's been like for people who are getting on planes who are worried about uh, other people being maskless. But you've been focusing on other types of mass transit, like buses and subways. How is the dynamic kind of different there? The big difference between air travel and public transit systems is that people rely on public transit for their daily commute to all kinds of things, including work medical appointments, going to the grocery store. And for many people who rely on the subway and especially on the bus, this is their only way to get around the cities uh, and towns that they live in. So these systems are really, really important for a lot of people and they often have no other choice but to use the bus or the subway. And so how is the fact that masks in many places are no longer required on mass transit starting to change the way that they are thinking about this? Or can they do anything to change how they are navigating this risk? For a lot of people, the loss of the mandatory mask mandates is a big deal. This is especially true for people who are at high risk of developing severe illness for COVID. Uh, and that's a pretty big group of people. It includes anybody who is over the age of 65, anyone who has underlying conditions like asthma or a heart disease, diabetes, things of that nature. Also, anyone who is immunocompromised. And these people had previously had the reassurance that everyone on their subway or bus would be wearing a mask because they were required to. And now every time they get on, they just don't know how many people will be wearing a mask. And they know that the best protection from uh, passing the virus from person to person is if everyone is wearing a mask. So this is changing some people's calculations about whether they should even get on the bus and what types of precautions they need to take if they do have to take the bus or the subway. So some people are upgrading the type of mask that they use to be a more expensive but a higher quality mask. And some people are choosing not to use public transit anymore at all because of the increased risk. But even the choice to not use public transit, I mean, that's a choice that not everyone has. And I think it's important to point out that for a lot of people who don't have other options other than using mass transit, that that has been the case for them this whole pandemic. I think many of us are sort of at this point of like, can I, you know, what are my risks? Am I willing to get on the bus? Am I willing to get on the train? But for a lot of people, you know, they've been commuting by mass transit this entire pandemic because they don't have any other choice and because they're not working remotely. And that the one protection they had was the masks. And now that's not in place anymore, at least in a lot of places. That's right. And I talked to some people who have that exact experience. 
one person that I talked to was Joanne Daniels Feingold, who's a 69-year-old wheelchair user who suffers from asthma and several other health conditions that put her at high risk for severe COVID if she was to catch the virus. But she has to use the bus in order to go grocery shopping, to get to her doctor's office. I go 15 miles to the stop and shop or 17 miles to the Trader Joe's. So the only way I can get there is by bus and train. And also to get to her weekend job, greeting people at a farmer's market, which is outside, so it's pretty low risk in general, but the public transportation uh, is now higher risk for her. This isn't a matter of rights. This is a matter of public health. If the case was that people who don't want to wear and don't wear masks wouldn't be putting other people in danger, it's fine, go ahead, put yourself out there. But the thing is, is that my wearing protection only partially protects me. But she just has no other way to get around other than using the bus. And especially for the grocery store and the doctor's office, these are places that she has to go in order to continue living her life. Listen, I've got so many comorbidities, it's not funny. And that's not anybody else's fault. I'm not, it's not my fault, for heaven's sake. But I want to keep myself as safe as possible because I think I'm worth it. And what do we know about what the risks actually are of being on a crowded subway or a crowded bus around maskless people? What previous studies about the transmission of the virus on buses have found is that it is definitely possible for the virus to spread, especially on a bus where the air circulation is not great. There was a study very early in the pandemic that looked at a super spreader event on a bus in China where 68 passengers were in the same vehicle for a 100-minute round trip. And by the end of the journey in the days following a third of the passengers um, who were all maskless tested positive for COVID. Not all buses are created equally when it comes to transmission of the virus. There are things that can be put in place to reduce the risk quite significantly. The big thing to look for is air circulation. So public transit systems that have taken efforts to make sure that air is circulating on the bus frequently and being filtered in order to remove any virus particles that might be in the air, that cuts the risk for passengers by quite a lot. Um, And things like heating, cooling, positive pressure, um, and other filtration systems on the bus can really help keep people from passing the virus from one person to another. Is there any advice that you have for people who are either immunocompromised or just really nervous and uncomfortable about being on mass transit with people not wearing masks around them? So one piece of good news that we know is that you can still have significant protection from transmission if you are wearing a mask, even if some of the people around you are not. So if you wear a mask on a bus, even if other riders aren't wearing masks, you will have some level of additional protection from catching the virus if anybody happens to have the virus on the bus. 
other things that you can do to help reduce your risk is sit near an open window or near the door of the bus where airflow Mm. is better. And the better quality mask that you wear, the better protected you are. So if you have access to an N95 or KN95 mask, those are the most protective. Surgical masks are also more protective than cloth masks. And if you have a cloth mask and a surgical mask together or a cloth mask with a filter, uh, those also provide some level of protection um, that's better than no mask at all. Katie, thank you so much. This is very helpful. Thanks. Katie Shepard is a health and science reporter for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.